The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled What's New in the Management of Eosinophilic Esophagitis? Working Together to Integrate Targeted Treatment Options into Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TGA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. This is Dr. Evan Dellen from the UNC Center for Esophageal Diseases and Swallowing in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Welcome to this unique case-based educational activity on diagnosing and managing eosinophilic esophagitis. This activity will give you the opportunity to explore strategies to confirm an accurate diagnosis and guide you through treatment options to optimize care. So let's get started and see how management decisions can change based on variable patient disease and treatment-related factors. We'll start with defining EOE. So EOE, or eosinophilic esophagitis, represents a chronic immune antigen-mediated esophageal disease characterized clinically by symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction and histologically by eosinophil-predominant inflammation. And what that means is when you think about the disease conceptually, you need to have each of those components present. For the epidemiology of EOE, we often ask, how common is it? Well, the prevalence is estimated to be about 1 in 2,000 people in Western countries, and the incidence, or the number of new cases, is estimated at about 10 per 100,000 individuals annually. This occurs most often in those aged less than 50 years. Uh, in generally, it's about three times more common in male patients than in female patients, and we still really don't know why this is. Now, that 1 to 2,000 number is in the general population, but if you look at subpopulations coming into GI practice, it can actually be much more common. So, for example, it's found in 2 to 7% of patients undergoing an upper endoscopy for any reason, and in up to 23% of patients undergoing endoscopy with dysphagia. And in fact, if you think about food impactions as the end stage of dysphagia, it's seen more than half the time. It's the most common cause of food impactions in the emergency room now. When we think of the presentation of EOE, it's important to realize that the presentation can vary by age. In the youngest children and infants, you often have a feeding disorder um, or trouble growing. And then as kids get older, they would have vomiting or abdominal pain, more nonspecific type of symptoms. And that could also include heartburn or um, regurgitation. And finally, when they get into adolescence and adulthood, symptoms become dysphagia predominant and with food impaction, with food frankly getting stuck in the esophagus. And we'll talk a little bit about why this is um, a little later. When we look at the youngest children, feeding dysfunction can certainly be prevalent in up to 60% of children, in fact. Um, and when you have feeding dysfunction in a child, you also can have a high risk for failure to thrive. When we approach the diagnosis to EOE, it can be challenging, and there's a number of reasons for this. First, symptoms are very nonspecific. You heard just now about some of the symptoms like abdominal pain or feeding difficulty, even dysphagia. All of these have many causes related to the GI tract and even outside of the GI tract. So the diagnosis now is based on guidelines that incorporate symptoms, histology, and excluding other causes of esophageal eosinophilia. Endoscopic features are very supportive, but are not required for diagnosis. It's also challenging because to take the step of doing an endoscopy is a big step. It's an invasive test. It can be expensive. It requires sedation. And so we don't undertake that kind of testing lightly. And particularly in children, it's um, uh, carefully considered before proceeding. And then the last part of the challenging uh, aspect of diagnosis is that the presence of eosinophils in the esophagus is not specific just to EOE. 
The differential diagnosis for esophageal eosinophilia is broad, and like any condition, uh, needs to be considered before you can make a diagnosis of EOE. Despite these challenges, early diagnosis of EOE is important. Diagnostic delay is common, and you can see on the left panel of this slide the average diagnostic delay on the y-axis with uh, different patient age, age groups on the x-axis. And you can see it does vary by age group, but you can see diagnose, diagnostic delays um, as much as 8 to 10 years in a large number of patients and then decreasing over time. Now, why is this important? Well, we consider diagnostic delay to be the time that there are symptoms present, but there is no diagnosis or treatment going on. And the longer you have symptoms present in the presence of active disease, the higher the chance that there are fibrotic complications of EOE and development of strictures. And that's what's shown in the rightmost graph from a study in Switzerland. Uh, you see with a duration of essentially zero or immediate diagnosis, um, you have uh, no patients that have strictures 100% without, but the longer you have prior to the diagnosis, you have a higher and higher proportion of patients who have esophageal strictures, such that by the time you get to 20 years or more with symptoms prior to diagnosis, the large majority of patients will be diagnosed with strictures. We'll turn now to the patient presentation and the approach to assessment. This is a 36-year-old man with a history of occasional chest pressure while eating or swallowing, and this has been going on for the past five years, but it's become more frequent in the last six months. On additional history, the patient has atopic conditions. He has asthma and atopic dermatitis since childhood. His current therapy is mostly focused on those other atopic conditions, including high-dose inhaled corticosteroids and a long-acting beta agonist for asthma, and a cutaneous topical steroid cream for the atopic dermatitis. On his physical exam, he weighs 175 pounds, 72 inches tall, and has a BMI of 24. On his skin exam, evidence of atopic dermatitis is seen with widespread pruritic rash and some lichenification. And on peak flow testing, it's, this is decreased with 250 liters per minute. He has no evidence of nasal polyps, his chest exam is normal, and he's satting well on room air. As we've just reviewed, Steve is experiencing a sensation of chest pressure while eating or swallowing. When we think about the diagnostic algorithm, historically with EOE, there's been a dilemma related to proton pump inhibitors or PPIs. Historically, we used a lack of PPI response to distinguish EOE from GERD. But over time, it became quite clear that GERD and EOE can overlap, and some patients with uh, EOE or GERD seem to improve with PPI therapy and were termed PPI-responsive res esophageal eosinophilia. However, more research showed that EOE and PPI-REE had similar clinical endoscopic, histologic, and even gene expression features prior to treatment. Um, patients who appeared to have EOE and not GERD responded to PPIs, and patients with EOE who responded to elimination diets indicating that they were food allergy triggered with their conditions also responded to PBIs when those diets were stopped. And so therefore, with the accumulation of data, the newest guidelines have eliminated the PPI trial from the diagnostic process in EOE. This really represents an evolving approach to PPIs. Overall, there were high response rates, maybe 40 to 50% to PPIs in patients who appeared to have EOE. 
And as mentioned, many of the baseline features clinically, histologically, immunologically, immunologically, and molecularly did not predict whether a patient would respond to a PPI. Interestingly, there are potential mechanisms that are non-acid mediated to explain how PPIs could work in EOE. First, they suppress Th2-mediated eotaxin-3 secretion, and eotaxin-3 is a chemokine that draws eosinophils into the esophagus. PPIs can also improve esophageal barrier function. Based on all of these data, the AGREE diagnostic guidelines, which were published in 2018, removed PPIs from the diagnostic algorithm and moved them so PPIs are now considered one of the first-line treatment options for EOE. We know now that Steve does not have reflux, but he has indicated that he avoids taking pills. When taking a patient history, it's important to go deeply into the history of dysphagia and not just stop at whether people are having trouble swallowing or having food stick. Many times patients with EOE or possible EOE will tell you, no, they swallow fine. And the reason for that is, is because they have had adaptive behaviors over time that minimize their symptoms. Now, these adaptive behaviors can be uh, remembered by this acronym, IMPACT, that was developed by Dr. Zico Hirano and Glenn Feruda and published recently. These adaptive behaviors are used to mask symptoms. And so when you think about this, you can think of I for imbibe, which is to drink or imbibe fluids. This facilitates passage of solid food down the esophagus. M is for modify foods, where you're cutting foods into small pieces or pureeing foods to allow them to go down easily. P is for prolonging mealtimes, eating slower to make it easier. A is to avoid harder texture foods, so actually getting rid of the foods from the diet that seem to stick the most. C is to chew excessively, again, making the food into some kind of um, paste that goes down easier. And finally, T, to turn away pills and tablets. And this is a subtle symptom, um, but if you ask about swallowing pills, it often brings out symptoms of dysphagia. So in general, patients should be queried about these type of adaptive behaviors um, when you're talking about possible dysphagia symptoms. This slide shows the most recent EOE diagnostic algorithm um, developed during the AGREE consensus conference. You start with a clinical presentation suggestive of EOE. After that, endoscopy with biopsy is performed, and EOE can be strongly considered if you find esophageal eosinophilia in the epithelium with at least 15 eosinophils per high power field. This equates to about 60 eos per millimeter squared if you're calculating the eosinophil density rather than the count per high power field. However, you cannot stop and make the diagnosis at that point. The key next step is to evaluate for non-EOE disorders that cause or potentially contribute to esophageal eosinophilia. Once those have been thoroughly considered and excluded or dealt with, then you can move to make the diagnosis of EOE. There's no need for any treatment trials, including with PPI, in this algorithm. These images show uh, typical endoscopic and histologic features of EOE. When you're doing the endoscopy, you need to do a very careful exam, slowly moving through the esophagus looking for findings, and importantly, gently washing off fluid and debris and fully insufflating the esophagus. When you do, you can see a picture like is shown on the left. It's a fully insufflated esophagus with minimal um, saliva or debris. You can see uh, findings that are typical, including edema, which is the loss of the normal vasculature, rings, the circumferential fixed rings that we can see when the esophagus is fully insufflated, exudates, which are the white spots seen in the esophagus, 
furrows, which are the crevices that go um, up and down the longitudinal axis of the esophagus. And finally, this picture doesn't demonstrate it, but you could see strictures as well. Um, other findings can include mucosal fragility, where the mucosa can split with passage of the endoscope, or more diffuse narrowing as opposed to focal strictures. The image on the right shows a typical esophageal biopsy. We're looking at the epithelium here, and you can see a marked infiltrate of multiple um, bright reddish-pink eosinophils here. When we assess the esophagus endoscopically, we use the EOE Endoscopic Reference Score, or EREFs, to carefully grade um, and record the findings. This is akin to using the LA grade uh, scale to grade your esophagitis or the PROG classification to accurately grade uh, findings of Barrett's esophagus. This provides endoscopists and GI docs a common language to talk about the findings, to rate the severity, and also follow them over time. Endoscopic testing for this patient with biopsy has revealed edema, rings, exudate, and furrows endoscopically, and the biopsies show 85 EOs per high power field, and in the absence in this patient with any other competing causes of esophageal eosinophilia confirms EOE as the diagnosis. Steve has expressed a, a desire for his treatments to minimize uh, the need for medications, and so he wanted to do diet elimination therapy as his first-line therapy. When a patient wants to do an elimination diet, the first step is to decide which foods for this patient should be eliminated. Now, traditionally, there has been the six-food elimination diet, which eliminates the six main food allergens and all foods related to them, including milk, wheat, egg, soy, nuts, including peanuts and tree nuts, and seafood, including finfish and shellfish. Now, this diet has been shown in prior um, studies to be about 60 to 70 percent effective, but of course, avoiding all of those foods can be very challenging for pa patients. Uh, because of that, a four-food elimination diet was developed, eliminating meat, milk, wheat, eggs, and soy. Um, and this was because the nuts and the seafood tended to be infrequent EOE triggers still relatively restricted. And so more recently, uh, investigators have looked at two food elimination diets of uh, milk and wheat, and even one food elimination of just milk, which is the most common EOE trigger. There's two general ways to approach diet elimination for EOE. Um, one uh, would be sort of the, the step down and more traditional six food elimination diet, where you eliminate all food groups at once if you have a response in that the endoscopy looks better, the biopsies look better, the patient's feeling better, um, you would then serially introduce one food at a time and then follow that food with another endoscopy. If the disease is flared up, that food is a trigger and it's removed permanently. If the appearance and biopsies are still good, that food is a safe food and can be continued. And in that way, you individually test each of those six foods or whatever number of foods you've eliminated. Now, in contrast, um, particularly because that's such a resource and time-intensive process, you could consider step-up elimination diet, where a patient starts with a less restricted diet, such as um, milk and wheat, and then if they respond, you only have to add back one or two foods to find out what the triggers are. And if they don't respond, then you move up to a more restrictive diet, typically a four-food elimination. And again, if they don't respond, you would move up to the full six-food elimination diet. The goal for all of these diets is not to keep the diet restrictive over time, but to find out what the triggers are, and usually patients have, on average, one to three food triggers that they will have to avoid long term. 
Steve has been trying the dietary therapy for about two months without any improvement and asks what the next step is. The management of EOE can be complex and requires an interprofessional approach, particularly when there are comorbidities uh, that are common in patients with EOE, such as asthma and atopic dermatitis like Steve has. As mentioned, for Steve, both are fairly severe and has required Steve to take oral corticosteroids in the past and maintain with inhaled and cutaneous steroids. Why is the interprofessional approach so important in the management of EOE? Well, patients with EOE can do well if they engage with a wide range of healthcare providers. Often, you have a gastroenterologist who is, of course, needed for the endoscopies and the biopsies and to help with the GI symptoms and management. Um, you often have an allergist immunologist also co-managing and helping to manage the non-GI atopic conditions. Um, pathologists, of course, will uh, help interpret the biopsy results. For patients who are on elimination diet, a dietitian is critical. Um, and then there's collaboration with the primary care physician. And in many cases, nurse practitioners or physician assistants are critical to long-term management of these patients. Uh, EOE is a heterogeneous condition associated with many atopic conditions, and sometimes there's multi-symptom um, involvement. We'll talk about the frequency of comorbid atopic uh, conditions, again, requiring an interprofessional uh, team and communication between these team members to optimize the management approach for these patients. Physician assistants and nurse practitioners play an increasing role in facilitating access to care across the continuum of primary and subspecialty health disciplines. They are uniquely positioned to provide patient education and engage in follow-up of stable patients. They can be instrumental in recognition and management of EOE, including discussions about shared decision-making. And they can assist with management of other comorbidities such as asthma and atopic dermatitis. This is a suggested approach to the management of EOE, and this algorithm was presented in the 2020 American Gastroenterological Association and the Joint Task Force on Allergy and Immunology Guidelines that were jointly published in Gastroenterology and uh, Annals of uh, Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. When you have a patient who has eosinophilic esophagitis, you have a discussion with that patient about first-line therapies. And these are can be either medical therapies on the left, such as proton pump inhibitors or topical swallowed corticosteroids, or non-pharmacologic approaches such as dietary elimination therapy. Once a patient chooses one of these options, they would be treated for between 6 and 12 weeks, depending on the option, and then they would be assessed for response. If they are a responder, um, essentially all patients with EOE are going to need longer-term maintenance therapy. This is a chronic disease, and the disease activity will flare if treatments are stopped. Um, if they are a non-responder, then it's a question of, okay, if they were on a diet therapy, we should, should we switch to a medical therapy or vice versa? And again, that's a discussion with the patient. Now, concomitant to choosing medical and dietary therapy, which are often thought to be anti-inflammatory therapies, getting rid of the eosinophils in the esophagus, if patients have concomitant fibrosis, strictures, or narrowing of the esophagus, esophageal dilation is a very important aspect uh, for, to manage the condition, and dilation can help open the esophagus to improve symptoms quickly. So it's very important to consider that as well in, in the algorithm. For non-responsive patients, again, they would be treated with a new therapy, 
After three months, depending on what the treatment is, they may have another endoscopy to assess response. And then again, if they finally respond, they would go on to maintenance therapy. Now, this algorithm was developed prior to the approval of a biologic medication for EOE. And we'll talk in a little while about where that biologic will fit in to the management of EOE. And, but it is going to be in the treatment algorithm, and it could be in many places here. Now, PPIs are a common first-line approach to treating EOE given the balance of ease of availability, safety, efficacy, and cost. And so after discussion uh, with Steve about the different options after not responding to the diet therapy, Steve agrees to give them a try. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't see any symptomatic improvement after two months, at which point another endoscopy and biopsy is performed, and it's unchanged. So after more discussions, it's decided for Steve to move on to topical corticosteroids. After three months on topical corticosteroids, Steve is again experiencing very little symptomatic improvement. The repeat upper endoscopy and biopsy is performed, and it shows ongoing endoscopic signs of EOE and persistently high levels of eosinophils on esophageal biopsy. Steve is understandably frustrated and asks again, what else could he try? There are a number of new therapies being developed for EOE based on our increasing knowledge of EOE pathophysiology. And this uh, graphic shows our current understanding of the pathogenesis of EOE. EOE is thought to be an allergic TH2-mediated condition um, that ultimately leads to the infiltration of eosinophils in the esophagus. But what happens is, in the setting of a weakened esophageal barrier, whether that's intrinsic to the patient or extrinsic from environmental exposures, allergens that would not otherwise get into the esophageal lining get in there and cause an allergic reaction. This activates Th2 lymphocytes, and this creates this typical Th2 cytokine cascade with cytokines such as IL-4, IL-5, or IL-13. The downstream effects of these cytokines are to recruit eosinophils and other inflammatory cells like mast cells into the esophagus, uh, start a profibrotic cascade, and these ultimately lead to what we see clinically, which can be uh, even worse loss of barrier effect in the esophagus, the eosinophilic infiltrate, the remodeling, and ultimately the clinical symptoms and signs. Now, atopic comorbidities in patients with EOE are quite common. Um, somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of EOE patients will have at least one atopic comorbidity and uh, almost half will have more than one atopic comorbidity. And so you can see in this graph, um, which is age stratified, how common allergic rhinitis, asthma, atopic dermatitis, and food allergy are in patients with EOE. Uh, the history of having a food allergy or atopic dermatitis is associated with a significantly shorter time between symptom onset and diagnosis, likely because the patient's already under care of providers who are aware of EOE. Um, and it is important to assess for EOE when patients are presenting um, with multiple atopic conditions and symptoms of esophageal dysfunction. Now, there's ongoing research to answer the opposite question. For example, how many patients with asthma may have EOE? We don't know the answer to that, but we do know about 5% of patients with immediate or IgE-mediated food allergies may have EOE. The knowledge of EOE pathogenesis has allowed application of biologic agents targeting some of the Th2 cytokines to try to treat EOE. Dupilumab is a biologic that uh, fits into this category. It's an antibody against the IL-4 receptor alpha. So what this does is the antibody blocks the IL-4 common subunit and so subsequently will 
stop signaling of IL-4 and of IL-13, because that one subunit the antibody blocks also co-localizes with another receptor that triggers IL-13 um, action. And that's shown in the graphic on the left of this slide. So this is a potent um, target of the Th2 inflammation. Um, it's been approved in the U.S. for treatment of moderate to se severe atopic dermatitis in patients aged six months and older, moderate to severe asthma in patients aged six years and older, and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, as well as paragonodularis in patients aged 18 and older. And then in May of 2022, it was approved for EOE in patients 12 years and older and weighing 40 kilos or more. These are the phase three data of dupilumab that led to its approval. The first co-primary endpoint in this phase three study was related to severity of dysphagia symptoms, and dupilumab reduced dysphagia symptoms both at week 24 and at week 52. You can see in the graph on the left, um, in the first part of this study, which was called part A, place weekly placebo shots were co compared to weekly dupilumab shots at 300 milligrams um, weekly, and there was significantly larger decrease in dysphagia symptoms as measured by an instrument called the DSQ, or the Dysphagia Symptom Questionnaire. Then the next study, which was called Part B of this uh, Phase three trial, placebo was compared again to weekly dupilumab or to dupilumab every other week. And here, again, we saw a significant symptom improvement in dysphagia with weekly dosing, but interestingly enough, not with the two-week dosing. Now, for patients who were started in that part A, um, patients who received dupilumab were continued on that another six months, and patients who received placebo initially were changed over and treated with dupilumab. The panel on the right shows what happened to those groups. Basically, the patients who had ongoing dupilumab treatment maintained that good symptom response, and patients who initially were on placebo after treatment with dupilumab achieved the same um, symptom response as patients achieved in part A. This slide shows the second co-primary outcome of that phase three study, which was related to histologic remission. This was defined as less than or equal to six eosinophils per high power field in the biopsies. This is a very stringent threshold, and you could think about it as essentially nearly normalizing inflammation in those biopsies. So again, in part A, very few people in placebo achieved histologic remission after 24 weeks of therapy, compared with about 60% in the 300 milligram weekly dose. And in part B, um, same very low placebo response with histologic re remission. And here, in contrast to the symptoms, both the weekly and the every other week dose um, led to higher levels of histologic remission compared to placebo. Now, again, when those patients in part A were followed on another six months, patients originally treated with dupilumab uh, and maintained that response histologically over um, the next six months and up to 52 weeks, and patients initially treated with placebo um, who were then given dupilumab achieved that similar approximately 60% histologic result, and that's shown in the panel on the right. Overall, dupilumab was generally well tolerated at both weeks 50, uh, 24 and 52 in the phase three study. Um, no new signals were developed um, in the safety profile um, from what was previously known for the other indications under study. Um, the most common adverse event for patients were injection site reactions, injection site erythema, uh, or injection site pain, injection site swelling. Um, there were 
only one medication-related uh, serious adverse event in the study that was due, thought due to dupilumab. So in general, um, quite well tolerated up to 52 weeks in patients with EOE. In addition to the phase three study, which examined patients 12 years of age and higher, recent data were presented in abstract form uh, on dupilumab in children aged one to 11 years. This is a phase three study designed to, ex to hopefully expand the indication for dupilumab use down into younger children. Um, here in this study, um, the patients were randomized one-to-one-to-one to, one to, one to um, either a higher exposure of dupilumab, a lower exposure, or to placebo for 16 weeks. And you can see that the results are here. Um, compared to placebo, uh, where there was very little histologic response, 68% um, of the children receiving dupilumab had a histologic uh, response and had a substantially larger decrease in baseline in their esophageal eosinophilic infiltrates compared to actually an increase in those kids treated with um, placebo. In addition, the endoscopic severity measured by the EREF score that we already talked about decreased significantly in the children compared to essentially no change in placebo. And interestingly, um, the change in body weight increased significantly and normalized in the children with EOE compared to no change in the placebo group. And this was similarly well tolerated. Um, there were no AEs leading to study drug discontinuation actually in the dupilumab group compared to 6% uh, in the placebo arm. Uh, and so now we are awaiting longer term data um, from this study um, and hopefully we'll, we'll see those results soon. When we think about where to position dupilumab for EOE treatment, there's a few things to think about um, related to the phase three study and where we think about using it in our clinical practice. The first thing is the phase three study enrolled fairly um, severe EOE patients. All of the patients in that study were PPI, PPI non-responsive by definition um, and by the inclusion criteria. About 70% had previously been treated with swallow topical steroids, and about 50% of those were non-responsive or intolerant to the steroids. And about 40% of the study population had been uh, undergone esophageal dilation. So this is not a treatment-naive, brand-newly diagnosed um, population of patients. And so we actually have very little data on how dupilumab would actually work as a first-line agent. Because of this, and to provide some guidance for use of this medication, um, Aceves and colleagues um, just recently published in Annals of a Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology what's called a yardstick, which is a brief update and expert opinion um, as we wait over the next year or two for this medication to be incorporated into clinical guidelines. So the first place that you could consider dupilumab use is in a patient who has EOE and other multiple atopic conditions that would actually merit use of dupilumab on their own. And in that situation, the weekly dose for EOE would be the preferred dosing, and we would expect benefit in the other atopic conditions. In those patients, you may be able to replace multiple different steroid preparations with one treatment. However, it is noted that when using this for asthma, you should not remove their asthma therapy, particularly as us as, a, as me as a GI doctor. It needs to be in consultation with the allergist or pulmonologist in understanding the patient's situation. The second easy place or natural place to use dupilumab in our current algorithms is when other current treatments either have failed, are intolerant, or cause adverse events. And that's certainly the situation in the case presentation we looked at today, where a patient was not responsive to diet therapy, PPIs, or topical steroids. This is really the situation that's more akin um, to many of the patients in the phase three study. And similarly, if a patient frequently needs oral corticosteroids to control their disease, dupilumab should be strongly considered.
Finally, in children or, or in adults who are having malnutrition, weight loss, failure to thrive, growth in, in impairment, um, and are quite severe, uh, dupilumab is reasonable to consider. One area where we don't know yet um, is for patients with severe and refractory strictures despite other treatments. There's some initial data in the phase two study of dupilumab that it may have an antifibrotic action and help expand the esophageal caliber, um, but that still remains under study. Turning now to some other uh, therapies that are under development based on the known pathogenesis of EOE, we'll start with sendacamab, previously known as RPC4046. This is a biologic, it's an antibody to circulating IL-13, and when it blocks IL-13, another one of uh, the key uh, TH2 cytokines, it prevents signaling through both of the IL-13 receptors, IL-13 receptor alpha-1 and alpha-2. Um, this is administered as a weekly subcutaneous injection. Now we have data for, for this medication, for sendacamab, in a phase two study. This was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in 99 patients aged 18 to 65. They underwent 16 weeks of treatment, either with a lower dose, 180 milligrams, a higher dose, 360 milligrams of the sendacamab versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was the change in the mean esophageal eosinophilia eosinophil count. And that's shown on the graph on the left, where in placebo there's no change, and at both low and high doses there's significant um, decrease in this um, in the eosinophil count with this medication. Um, similarly, there was no change in histologic response with placebo and significant change compared to placebo of both the low dose and the high dose. And as you can see in the graph on the right, we're looking at the endoscopic severity with EREFs, uh, minimal change in the placebo group compared to significant decreases in endoscopic severity with this medication. Um, there was also a strong trend towards symptom improvement, but the study was not powered to measure symptom improvement. Based on these results, a phase three study of this medication is currently ongoing. So to conclude this case study, after failing dietary therapy, PPIs, and topical steroids, Steve decides through a shared decision-making approach to try dupilumab to treat his EOE along with his other atopic comorbidities. After six months of treatment, he is having a symptom improvement, and the endoscopy performed at that time shows that the endoscopic appearance has improved, and esophageal biopsies show histologic remission. He continues on the medication, and after one year of treatment, he is still feeling well, and his uh, monitoring endoscopy and biopsy at that time shows continual improvement in endoscopic healing and ongoing histologic remission in the biopsies. So in conclusion, uh, EOE is a condition that is increasing in incidence and prevalence globally and is a major cause now of morbidity from upper GI symptoms. The diagnostic criteria for EOE are updated and a PPI trial is no longer required. To make the diagnosis, you have to have the appropriate symptoms in the setting of esophageal eosinophilia, still at least 15 EOs per high power field, and importantly, after an evaluation for no other competing causes of esophageal eosinophilia. When you're evaluating a patient who may have EOE and you're trying to assess whether there's dysphagia, it is very important to ass assess eating behaviors. Um, these can be different in adults and children, and to use the impact uh, mnemonic to make sure you're fully assessing all of the potential adaptive behaviors. EOE is considered to be a progressive disease that goes from inflammation to fibrosis in most, but not all, patients. We know that with increasing diagnostic delay and ongoing symptoms without treatment, the majority of patients will present 
with uh, signs of fibrosis, such as esophageal strictures or narrowing. And therefore, we think early diagnosis and ongoing effective therapy will likely reduce complications, and there's certainly plenty of data to suggest this. When we think about treatment, PPIs, topical corticosteroids, and dietary elimination are considered first-line therapies, and since we have no comparative trials between these right now, a shared decision-making approach should be used in the context of an interprofessional approach as well with the patient to select the initial treatment. Finally, we are entering the era of targeted biologic therapy, and we now have in the U.S. an approved medication, dupilumab, for EOE in patients 12 years of age and older and 40 kilos or more. Um, this medication is under study for sure as to where to be positioned in the EOE treatment algorithm, um, and it can certainly be considered early for patients who have multiple atopic conditions um, and for patients uh, who are treatment refractory, and its use otherwise needs to be also in a shared decision-making model with the patients. A number of other therapies are in development based on our expanding knowledge of the EOE pathogenesis. So it's a very encouraging and exciting time um, for drug development and offers a lot of optimism for patients afflicted by this condition going forward into the future. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TGA 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.